From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Hello and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Dr. Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we are not recording in the studio, but remotely via phone and computer. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region, homeland of the Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations, present and past, who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties, and we honor the indigenous individuals and communities who've been living and working on this land from time immemorial. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kay Nomaguchi and Dr. Sandra Faulkner. Kay is a professor of sociology and a research affiliate with the Center for Family and Demographic Research and the National Center for Family and Marriage Research at BGSU. Kay's research explores various social and personal dimensions of parenting in the U.S., Sandra is a professor in the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. Her research focuses on how individuals navigate gender and sexuality through interpersonal communication and personal narrative. She often uses creative expression and autoethnography to explore her own negotiation of identity as a parent, partner, and professor. Today, we're talking about how the pandemic has affected professionals who are also caretakers. But first, I'd like to hear a little bit for both of you about your research and how you got into studying care work in particular. Kay, will you start us off? Yes. Um, thank you, Jolie, and thank you for the nice introduction. I'm interested in studying parents, parenting, uh, parent-child relationships in the United States today, and including work-family conflict and parenting stress and well-being of the parents and children. So, well, I began my graduate study wanting to study gender inequality in workplace. But then I quickly realized that uh, gender inequality in the workplace is deeply rooted in gender inequality in within the family, especially uh, caretaking roles. And so as we all know, the women disproportionately uh, shoulder caretaking uh, responsibilities. And that prevents uh, women you know, from putting time and energy in their paid work activities. So that's how I sort of switched uh, our interest in family rather than uh, workplace. What about for you, Sandra? How, what has your evolution as a scholar on this subject been? Well, initially, I was interested in the kind of broad topic of difficult conversations and close relationships. And so I had started studying that in graduate school. I was interested in how partners, uh, women in particular, negotiated sexual activity, sexual pleasure, you know, in, in essence, how they talked about sex and sexuality. 
Um, and, and I will say, by the way, that I studied it kind of traditionally, and by traditionally, I mean kind of traditional qualitative research. And so I think the evolution of my work moving toward more creative ends and the use of poetry, personal narrative, in social science happened with some of the evolution of the topics that I was interested in studying. And really, some of this shift happened when I also became a mother. And I, I have an 11-year-old now. And since we're going to be talking about care work and balancing and all of that, I had been... Um, you know, reintroduced to poetry when I was doing a postdoc, and I started to kind of move in a more critical direction. I was still interested in difficult conversations and close relationships, but then it started to move to, you know, examining some personal experiences and then connecting that up to larger structural issues. And so I started studying, you know, mother work you know, shortly after my daughter was born. And one thing that I found was that using personal narratives, using poetry were things that fit in between some of those care spaces. So I couldn't do large ethnographic projects where I was out in the field for long periods of time. And so that's really been some of, you know, where I was and some of where I was going. And I look forward to talking more about that. I'd like to start maybe with um, sort of defining some of our terms. So, Kay, when you talk about care work, what is what does that mean to you and what are you including in that? So I tend to define care work as one person's activity meeting the needs of others who cannot fully care for themselves. So it includes child care, elderly care, you know, care for people who are ill or injured, or care for people with disabilities, or care for people who need help in learning few um, new skills or subjects, and many other things. So care work is actually everywhere around us. But in in my work and also uh, today's discussion, I focus on you know, care care for children, care work for children, and so. But uh, it involves a lot of work that we need to be alive and to be functioning. And what about for you, Sandra? Does your definition differ in in any distinctive ways? Uh, When I think of care work, I think of it as work that honors, facilitates, and promotes our connections with others. And it is fundamentally relational work. And when I view relating as the fundamental unit in our lives, so it's probably not surprising that I study relational communication, but when we think about if relating is the fundamental unit and the thing that we all do, then caregiving is what keeps our relating and our relationships going. Kay, can you talk a bit about what your research has shown life sort of in general or in the aggregate, was like for working caretakers before the pandemic. So if we can go back to imagining, right, the before times, what were some of those general patterns? What were the factors typically shaping people's roles as career workers and caretakers? Well, actually, I appreciate this question about sort of focusing on the work-family conflict uh, before the pandemic, because, you know, the issues that 
you know, right now, the issues of the work-family conflict that many parents are experiencing now you know, during the pandemic period are actually already pre-existing before the pandemic and the school closures and remote working or remote learning you know, really have highlighted the pre-existing you know, work-family conflict that many American parents experience. So I said the work-family conflict, it, it's actually um, you know, what the researchers uh, use as a concept uh, when we you know, talk about the situation where we find it difficult to meet you know, our work responsibilities because of our family responsibilities or you know, a situation that we find it difficult to meet our family responsibilities because of our work responsibilities. So anyway, so the levels of the work-family conflict really depend on your work and family characteristics. For example, if you have a work that requires your, require you to work long hours, then it is difficult for you to leave your work at 2 p.m and go home and you know, be there before your child comes home from school. But then if your job gives you a resource, meaning that like a flexible work hours, then you can actually start working like you know, 7 a.m. after your kid you know, leaves your house and then you know, stop working 2 p.m. and come home, you know, be there before your kid uh, comes home. And then you know, complete your work after your kid goes to bed. So anyway, so the, the demands and resources that your job uh, gives you really determines you know, how you can balance you know, work, family responsibilities. And Sandra, your work also examines how people balance their roles as caretakers and their professional or working life. How have you, in your research, explored some of the factors that shape how we navigate these different obligations? Can you talk a bit about maybe one of your projects exploring this intersection? Sure. Actually, I want to talk about two projects, but I'll I'll make it brief because I use personal narrative, memoir, poetry, and image. I've been working with some visual images as well to do more kind of hybrid collage work. And and I should add video and, and audio as well to show the tensions in our family and interpersonal life. So tensions between self-care and care for others, tensions between work and personal roles. And the first example in Knit for Frog One, it's a poetry collection that I actually introduce as social science, though it is a, it's a series of poems about family stories. And I use different poetic forms such as collage, free verse, dialogue, poems, sonnets to show and critique patterns of communication in close relationships. And in particular, this collection is looking at mother-daughter relationships, women's work, mothering, writing, and family secrets. And what I do in the collection is try to knit collection uh, connections between a do-it-yourself value. These are some of the, the themes that I saw in my own family, economics, family culture, right, through the poems. And I use poems and images to talk about four generations of women in my family. 
you know, my grandmother, my mother, myself, and my daughter. And so I was really calling it memoir in, in verse. But the poems really play with these tensions of work, family life, and, you know, ultimately kind of show that it's through those everyday interactions that we see some of the meaning of the relationships. And I wanted to talk about another project that I just finished because it's it's relevant to caretaking in the pandemic. And it's a project I'm calling Buttered Nostalgia. In this piece, I use poetry, personal narrative to tell a story of cooking, cleaning, and caring for my elderly parents during last March 2020 when the lockdown first happened. I originally had gone for spring break and then, you know, everything shut down. And so I ended up staying, you know, some extra days. Um, My parents are, you know, both disabled. And so the piece talks about, you know, how I cared for them. And it's organized as a series of daily menus, lyrical reflections, narrative poems about family stories, family values, and the enactment of the supportive behaviors that really show how families deal with political difference, identity negotiation, crisis, um, because partly what I was doing when I was there was trying to convince my parents that the pandemic was actually real. And so the questions that I ask in this project, you know, what does it mean to be a good daughter? And, you know, how does one reconcile family differences and political views and hold true to family and personal values? And the third question that I explored in this piece was, how does one decide what obligations to focus on during a moment of personal and international crisis? And so I think in this piece, the use of poetic inquiry shows how public cultural discourses influence our private experiences. Okay, since Sandra has brought up the kind of methodological approaches, could you talk a bit about maybe one of your research projects and kind of what are some of the animating research questions and the methods that you're going about it to sort of track some of these changes to caretaking and that, you know, work-family conflict? Well, for my research, I use national data, uh, national survey data, uh, often collected by um, U.S., federal agencies like Census Data, a Census Bureau, or a Center for Education Statistics. So my strength is to analyze uh, those data that are already collected by other you know, researchers and um, looking into uh, variations you know, by you know, social groups, and especially the socioeconomic status and uh, race ethnicity or uh, marital status or other types of family structure. Well, so I looked at the, the uh, work family conflict, now how the work family conflict uh, distributed differently you know, by you no know, socioeconomic status. So, well, okay, so other types of stress tend to be more experienced by those you know, who have fewer resources uh, in terms of the socioeconomic uh, resources. But in terms of work-family conflict, it's actually uh, those who have higher SES, socioeconomic status, also experience high work-family conflict. Uh, That's because those who have higher socioeconomic status tend to have higher responsibilities in the workplace. 
So especially when you have responsibilities for other people, you know, supervising, that actually increases job demands for you. And whenever people who, who you supervise have questions, you know, even though it's not your um, you know, work hours, you have to you know, answer <laughs> those questions you know, sometimes immediately to deal with you know, some immediate issues. And those you know, work uh, responsibilities tend to spill spilling into your family life. So that is you know, really cause a high you know, work-family conflict. So work-family conflict is, in that sense, it's a unique type of stressor that affects people who have a higher socioeconomic status. Is it too simplistic to sort of say that what we see at the lower socioeconomic status is that the family life is interfering with work, right? Especially if you think about the pandemic and like school closures and things like that. And what we're seeing is more the other side of it with higher socioeconomic status families where the work life is interfering with the family because those jobs have been are still there, but the demands have shifted? Or is it more complicated than that? Oh, actually, that's a great question, a great point. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. So, okay, so those who have, who have lower socioeconomic status, their jobs tend not to allow them to have flexibility. So they, most times they cannot take their work to home. So and it, it ended up that work family conflict, it's almost like whether you have you can keep a job or not. And that actually gets to more difficult situation, economically difficult. And so the highest yes, you know, professional jobs that tend to allow the workers to take their work home. And so at least the highest yes, uh, jobs, they can keep the job, although the amount of work don't decrease, and that gets it gets to a higher stress level. But in terms of the family demands, those who have lower socioeconomic or economic status tend to have uh, more illness and injuries among family members, and that increases needs for caretakers at home. So, but. When it comes to parenting, the complication today is that the parenting culture in U.S. increasingly emphasizes parents to be involved in their kids' lives. And especially that pressure is high among professionals. So that sort of um, make it complicated you know, in terms of socioeconomic status differences in uh, work-family conflict. We're going to take a quick break. Thank you for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Kay Namaguchi and Sandra Faulkner about the pandemic's impact on caretakers. 
Sandra, throughout your career, as you've demonstrated, you've explored poetry and creative modes as methods of critical inquiry. Can you talk a bit about what poetic inquiry is and how it functions as a scholarly method of analysis? Sure. Pretty simply, poetic inquiry is the use of poetry as research, in research, and for research. Poetry can be used as a tool and a method for presenting research data. It can be used as a source of data and also as a source of data analysis. When I define it right for students, I'll say poetic inquiry is the use of poetry that's crafted from our research endeavors, either before a project analysis, as a project analysis, and or poetry that we use that's part of or constitutes an entire research project. Poetry used as qualitative research is a method then that you would turn research interviews that you do, transcripts, observations, personal experience, and reflections into poems or poetic forms. Poetic inquirers use poetry then as a method of inquiry by presenting their research as poetry, by analyzing poetry as qualitative data, using poetry to show the research process and as a means of data analysis. So as you can see, it's, it can come in anywhere in the research process. Also, some researchers, and I would argue this as well, use poetry as a way to ensure rigor in qualitative research and as a means to show reflexivity and the research context. And so I really see poetic inquiry as a feminist methodology because of the focus on ethics. There's also can be um, a real focus on collaborative work. I do a lot of collaborative poetic inquiry. And because poetic inquiry is embodied research practice. And Kay, could you talk a bit about, you're looking at kind of large quantities of data, right? And looking for patterns in that. And you know, given that this moment of the pandemic, we are all hearing about the challenges of caretakers. That is, this is no longer a kind of submerged narrative. It's it's one that I think most people are really paying attention to. How are you thinking about your quantitative research as a way of illustrating or complicating the personal experiences? Right. So how how are you? sort of thinking about the relationship between the sort of anecdotal stories that we might hear on the news and the data that you're studying, you know, in, in the aggregate. So the, the quantitative studies that the purpose or strength is to you know, find the patterns across the U.S. population or among the U.S. parents. And, you know, when I interpret our data, you know, I rely on the you know, qualitative studies and how the you know, qualitative studies you know, show you know what parents actually say you know, exp you know how how they describe you know, their you know, difficulties or worries about you know, their kids and how things changed before and after pandemic. So I think you know, both sort of the qualitative research or anecdotal studies and the quantitative studies kind of um, give us a whole picture. So, for example, so uh, there's a lot of, you know, there has been a lot of you know, studies, you know, studies showing um, whether, you know, even among those who were able to keep their jobs, uh, mothers with children, again, reduced their work hours. And of course, the, those data doesn't tell us why. 
but you know, from qualitative studies and anecdotal stories, we can guess that this is because these mothers you know, had to attend to their children at home who were who couldn't attend childcare centers or schools. So that's how I sort of you know, use you know, our quantitative data and you know, qualitative data that other uh, researchers you know, collected. It's no secret that at ICS, we believe in the power of collaboration. Could you each talk about what those collaborations look like for you and how it enriches your work? I really think collaborative work is like a good conversation where you see the back and forth, the give and take. And so a lot of my collaborative work starts with conversations. I've been fortunate to work with both poets and social scientists in in fruitful collaborations. And the collaborations always begin with conversations about issues that have been bothering us, you know, occupying our times, our thoughts. And I just think of some work that I've done with a poet and essayist, Sheila Squilante. We've done some video work. We've published a feminist woman of Festa that was born out of some conversations we were having about feminism and toxic masculinity and rape culture and our mutual love of poetry. And so that just kind of, you know, got us started about, um, you know, wanting to do a project. And so when I work with others, I like to think of it as a conversation, but also we work by going with our creative strengths and always honoring the relationship. And so, you know, what this means I think that that's important for the collaboration, right? Always honor the relationship they have with the other person. Always, you know, secondly, think of it as a conversation. And then thirdly, kind of play with, right, the strengths of each collaborator. And Kay, what does collaboration look like um, with the kind of work you're doing? And what sorts of roles do you play in those collaborations? I have to be honest about my personal situation, meaning that, you know, I have a daughter, who is now 14. So I I have to work around my daughter's schedule. So that really sort of make it difficult for me to collaborate with other uh, researchers because sometimes I I work after my my daughter sleeps. And so so sometimes I I just cannot have a meeting even during the late afternoon. So expanding my collaboration is my hope after my daughter <laughs> leaves my home. So anyway, so, so currently it's more, uh, my collaboration is more with my grad, graduate students. So in part, not, you know, I, I, it is my responsibility to train graduate students you know, to be independent researchers. So sort of the you know, training and also the collaboration go hand in hand. And so uh, well, the graduate students you know, bring you know, fresh ideas and new ideas. And so our conversation sometimes you know, creates uh, new uh, research questions. And that is also how I benefited when I was graduate student. I collaborated with you know, uh, academic advisors and other you know, faculty. This is a question that is perhaps unfair. It's a bit about prognostication. But 
Given what each of you knows from your own research, do you think the shift that we are seeing in the personal and professional lives of so many working caretakers, do you think these shifts will indicate a permanent reversal of some of the gains for gender equity? Do you think we're about to have a national reckoning? Do you have any thoughts about kind of what the last year has revealed about labor and gender in our society? So, you know, the, uh, the media has been emphasizing that, that there has been an increase in gender inequality and especially in, in terms of the, um, the labor force participation. And that is you know, true in terms of the data um, you know, showing that the gender gap in labor force participation between the mothers and fathers increased by 5%. Especially the districts where schools kept closed, and some people said, "Well, that's that will have a you know, long-term consequences in prolonged gender inequality." But there are some other uh, data showing that you know, during the pan- pandemic, more fathers got involved in housework and childcare especially those you know, who were able to work from home. There are some you know, house, you know, good portion of uh, households that those you know, both mothers and fathers you know, saying that their share of you know, housework and childcare got a little bit more egalitarian. So that means that there's a positive signs towards gender equity. It may be that you know, this situation that both fa- mothers and fathers, you know, kind of stuck in the household and you no know, stuck in home, and the fathers found a way to get involved in daily routine of children's lives or you know, housework. So now employers you know, know that employees can work from home you know, without reducing productivity. So that's uh, probably a good sign that after this pandemic, maybe more workplaces um, will provide work-family flexible arrangements to both fathers and mothers, and hopefully that will increase gender equity. What about you, Sandra? Any fortune-telling, or if not kind of what you think will happen, what you hope might happen post-pandemic? Uh, th- that those are kind of two different questions because as I was listening to to Kay, I was like, I, I'm not quite as optimistic, and I don't know if it's because I'm on. I was on a few um, like Facebook groups with like working moms. You know, some of them academics, some of them not, and it, it seemed to me that it was kind of mixed in terms of you know expectations. And you you know you would hear stories about the child care falling right back on on women right during the pandemic and i do think that you know for some workplaces you know yes being able to work at home might be good or if you have some reduced expectations like maybe you can have you know another year toward tenure but i don't really see a lot of reduced expectations for work i mean i'm just thinking personally you know i got less done this year because there were two of us working from home and then it was you know the my 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 daughter was going to school at home and 
and always asking questions about, you know, can you help with, you know, this math problem, et cetera. And it, it just seems like there were the expectations for producing, right? We're still there. And so, but the hopeful part is here, here it is, you know, as someone who studies like personal narratives, et cetera, I did see some news coverage. I, I think the New York Times had some coverage of all kinds of working mothers, right? All levels of like socioeconomic status, et cetera. And I, and, and I had a lot of friends who posted stories of like, I'm really not feeling okay. And I'm you know, feeling really overwhelmed about all of this. And so I'm wondering if, if maybe we have some more of these discourses about the importance of caregiving and these, these conversations and these stories are out in the public, then maybe we can get some policy changes that might actually make our lives better. And so I think that it's, that that's what I hope for the future is that we have more of this honest kinds of storytelling and then that actually shifts into real policy changes that can enact some of the changes I think we need. And Kay, to that score, given your research, what are some of the kinds of policy changes that would make a significant difference in the lives of you know working caretakers? So, well, first of all, so those you know, flexible uh, work hours and uh, workplace is very important uh, or necessary you know, for parents or you know, um, any types of you know, caretakers you know, to keep their jobs you know, while they uh, meet their you know, family responsibilities. So I hope that uh, more you know, workplaces um, recognize the needs for uh, those uh, work flexibility. And also like you know, Sandra you know, mentioned about the expectations I think the the change in the culture. So it's it's not a policy, but it it's a change in culture in terms of you know, what we expect. Or maybe I should say that everyone should expect that everyone had family responsibilities. And I think you know, this you know, pandemic really um, you know, pushed the public. No discussing no this issue, and I think that's uh, no really no no. That's why I think I I'm kind of optimistic. So the policies and also the cultural change is important. And Sandra, do you want to add anything? Are there particular kinds of policy changes that you think would make a dramatic difference in the lives? Yeah, I, I think that we need universal daycare for everyone. I think we need family leave policies. And I, I'm particularly even thinking about, you know, those who might wait tables, for instance, if, if that's their job. I think we need to value workers before profits. I mean, that's the other <laughs> Right. Because I, I, in our conversation, I keep hearing a lot of, well, we still have these expectations, but it still seems to be all about producing something. And so what that says is we really need to value caretaking, first of all. And I think like, like, hey, maybe maybe we're starting to see some of that valuing of it. And I think that a lot of this caretaking was just invisible. And so maybe people just didn't think about it until they had to think about it. And so that's what I think we need the policies as well as kind of the cultural uh, value placed on everyone who does caretaking. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kay and Sandra. Listeners can keep up with ICS happenings by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ICSBGSU. 
You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Our producers for this episode are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza, with sound editing by Deanna McKeegan, Ryan Cummings, and Marco Mendoza. Stevie Shurek researched and wrote interview questions. 